Yele is the first person I've interviewed on the podcast who is not a pickleball player, but he has a great deal to offer to listeners as he talks about the importance of your mindset when trying to perform at the highest levels on the court. Yele is a mental performance coach who helps athletes adapt to the negative aspects of the sports environment. So let's get to the intro to learn more. Welcome to the Pickleball Fire podcast, where it's all about pickleball. Okay, today I would like to welcome to the podcast sports psychologist. His name is Yelly. Hi, uh, Lynn. How are you doing? I'm doing great. As we talked about, I didn't pronounce your last name because I know I would butcher it. You're from the Netherlands, but I wanted to bring you on the podcast today. You're actually going to be the first person who does not play pickleball to be on the podcast, but you have a very interesting background as a sports psychologist. So I thought it would be interesting to get you on and have a chat about some of the mental aspects of playing a sport. And in this case, pickleball, which I think is especially important for people who are really trying to move up a level and get to a tournament level. So just to get started, tell me a little bit about your background as an athlete and your sport, sports coaching now. Yeah, for sure. So um, I, I, I guess I come from a background of, of volleyball and, and soccer, mostly as an athlete. Um, but I've, I, as, a, as a mental performance trainer, I've, I've really diversified and I, I work with a lot of different sports, uh, uh, including some maybe less than mainstream ones. Uh, one interesting one I picked up lately was working with a dragon boat boating team. Uh, but yeah, my background is in um, in sport psychology. So I have a master's in sport psychology and I'm using that uh, now to, to be a mental performance consultant. So I work with individuals, groups, clubs, uh, different sports, different ages, different levels. And my aim is always to try and um, maximize somebody's, um, I, I guess, mental performance by helping them deal with the negative parts of each sporting environment and helping them kind of utilize any any positive parts of that same environment and when athletes can do this those two things then they they tend to be very successful well that's interesting as i mentioned when we were talking a little bit earlier my background is also in sports psychology and i kind of picked two areas to talk about which i think will fit in really nicely with what you just mentioned one of them would be anything around negative self-talk and then also mm -hmm. around anxiety are those two of the common things that you would work on with athletes that you work with? Absolutely. And they're very related as well. I think uh, negative self-talk can lead to anxiety and, and the other way around. Uh, a lot that I do, especially when talking about anxiety, is I, I, there's sometimes a misconception about the role and the importance of emotions in sport. And, and in my opinion, anxiety is one of those emotions. And often when people say, well, you know, can, can we work on anxiety? Their idea is to to actually get rid of it. And, and I try to turn that around and say like, well, let's first ask the question whether it's helping you or not. And once we figure that out, then we can see what we can do about it. So, you know, for me, anxiety is, is, is something that I work on a lot. And I really try to make people look at it differently and have a different relationship with with that particular emotion. And that's great because I've heard of many athletes who, you know, are professional players in a variety of sports and they still get butterflies when they 
walk on the court. Do you find that common with the people you work with too? Absolutely. The moment the your, your competition or, or whatever you're doing, I guess, doesn't evoke any emotions anymore. The moment that happens, it's going to be really hard to to perform at the highest level. Because in essence, what, what our emotions are, they're just alarm bells that are built into our brain. So the natural tendency of the human brain is to to kind of switch off, go inside your brain and, and preserve en- energy. This is why we like you know browsing Facebook and, and watching shows that you don't really have to think about. That's that state of just, just sit and, and you don't really have to do anything. But to make sure that you know we're not constantly in danger, we have emotions that are alarm bells that pull us out of that state and, and make us pay attention to the environment. So they're really useful because when we're anxious, when we're angry, when we feel these emotions, we have so much energy. So to me, it would be really weird to say, well, let's remove those from sport because there's so much to gain from the energy. So the the the, the butterflies that you talk about, I, I think is a positive um, uh, manifestation of anxiety. Often people who have little butterflies play a little bit better because they're using that energy that comes from the emotion to use that into their sport. The problem is, on the other hand, what happens if that anxiety is so strong that you can't perform and you just completely collapse? So there is a balance to be found between using your emotions uh, for the energy they give you, but on the other hand, making sure that you're not consumed by, by that emotion. I think that's a a great analogy. I mean, it's really talking about the fight or flight response and really getting your arousal level at the right level. So many people, like you mentioned, think of anxiety as as being a negative. And if it is really impacting somebody's performance in a bad way, how do you help them deal with that? So there's there's several things that you can do. The first step would be okay, can we control the the level of anxiety, right? So if, if we have an athlete that is just, the, the emotion is too strong, then we can, we can help them uh, by using some techniques. So one really good technique that, that I like to teach is it's called transcendental meditation. It's a very complicated name for basically um, fancy breathing. So what it does, it, it, it helps you reset the levels of, of emotions that you have by counting your breath from 10 to one uh, downwards and then one and then back up from one to seven. And it just helps with kind of that, that innate level of, of emotion that you're feeling at a certain moment. So that's a technique I teach athletes to, to, for in the moment, but that's kind of a quick fix, right? What we really want to try and do is, is what you call emotional restructuring. So that anxiety is coming from somewhere. Emotions are a reaction to the environment. So there is something in your environment in combination with your set of beliefs that is causing anxiety. So if we can change the way you think about certain things, then we can address the source of the anxiety and maybe we can make it a little bit less intense or we can actually use it to be... um, to be, I guess, successful. So, and then you get into the area of like growth mindsets, fixed mindset, all that kind of thing. So often anxiety is is a perception that you can't deal with a certain um, challenge. So if we can change your perception about that challenge, we'll probably change how you feel in terms of your anxiety as well. 
I know one of the things that I really struggled with as a young athlete, certainly at the high school level, was just having a lot of negative self-talk. And, you know, it's interesting because you even see that in the professional ranks. I mean, mm. I remember just recently watching U.S. Open and the French Open for, for tennis. And some of the negativity that, you know, was on the court was pretty pretty amazing and you could just hear the self-talk because there really wasn't much of a crowd how do you help athletes deal with their negative self-talk that's always tricky because negative self-talk just like like the anxiety it, it can very much lead to um to a negative performance like an, it can have a negative outcome on the performance but that is not necessarily true uh, on the other hand, positive self-talk doesn't always lead to to increased performance. So when I work with self-talk, um, there's a few things that we that uh, that I work with with my clients. Is first of all, we need to make it deliberate, right? So we have what we call automatic self-talk. That's just a reaction you have to to certain circumstances. I will never be able to teach an athlete not to swear at themselves if they make a mistake if that's what they want to do. But that's not necessarily bad It's because if that doesn't have a negative meaning or a def or negative kind of layer underneath it, that is just a reaction. That's an emotional reaction and you can move on, right? So if I see an athlete that, you know, sw shouts a swear word after, after a stupid mistake, and then I can see an immediate switch to the next point, as a, as a mental trainer, I'd be like, yeah, sure, that's fine. I don't, I don't mind. I'm not here to to eliminate any negative feelings or ne any negative uh, points that you have in your game. I'm here to make you to, to help you perform. So if that isn't influencing your performance, then sure. What I mostly work on with self-talk is what we call the directed self-talk. So we build scripts um, that, and then that script that says when you're going to use it, what you're going to say, what it means, uh, what you're trying to do, etc. So the the automatic self-talk, it is a problem when it becomes too negative, when you're just, you know, critiquing yourself all the time and you just tell yourself that you're not worth anything. But if it's just a reaction to the to the situation, I, I don't read too much into that. Yeah, well, that actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, self-talk, when it's negative, it becomes a problem when a player, as a result of that, loses focus and they're not ready for the next point and you can see it impacting them. Exactly. It's whether negative self-talk is a problem has more to do with how long the effect of that self-talk lasts. If it's one second, okay. If it's a few minutes, okay, maybe now we're in a situation where we need to do something about it. Uh, it is interesting because a big mindset shift that a lot of athletes need to make is that the acceptance of the fact that certain negative things don't have a negative influence on your performance. And to accept the fact that you are going to feel uncomfortable at certain points during competition, right? It, a great game doesn't mean that you feel great. That isn't necessarily true. Very often overcoming overcoming challenges and stuff like that is is really important and actually leads to great performance. Right? I mean, think about like things we all like, like comebacks. Well, a comeback can only happen if you you were really bad at the beginning. So you can be really good because you were really bad. So 
that that mindset change, I think, for for a lot of um, younger athletes or athletes that are aspiring to to reach that next level is take a step into that uncomfortable feeling because it's it's not something you should shy away from. It can help, but if it goes too far, then you know I, I look at that with my clients and say, okay, can we can we make sure that this doesn't completely destroy your game? One thing I wanted to touch on too, and it's not necessarily around, you know, the negative side of, you know, the mental game and sports performance, but one of the things I think I saw on your website was talking about routines. And one Mm -hmm. of the best examples I can always think of, of course, when it comes to having a routine is Nadal and tennis. In in (laughs) fact, you know, his routines were so extensive that that's why they now have a, a time clock uh, yeah. for the serve, you know, for the server to serve. So talk, talk a little bit about routines. I think a lot of people, if they don't have that sports psychology background or mental training, really understand what's happening with a routine. Yeah. So routines are really interesting because it's a, um, it's very much a, a double-edged sword. So on one hand, the research says that if you have a consistent routine um, that you execute before uh, skills, so often this is closed loop skills, so serve in in tennis, uh, free throws in basketball, uh, all that kind of stuff. So skills that nobody else can interfere with, um, then you can really boost performance. On the other hand of routines, you have superstitions, which are... um, things that an athlete has to do in order to feel like they're not failing. So where those two meet is the, is the kind of gray zone and is where it becomes really tricky. And there's a few things that we can try and do to prevent superstitions from forming, but still using routines. The, the main difference is that a routine is something that helps you prepare for a certain skill or a certain situation. And a superstition is if that act is not there, you will do worse. So one is to increase performance and the other one, the absence of it will decrease performance. And those are really, really tricky. And so when we're building routines, what's really important is that there's acts in there that will give you information about the, um, the, the upcoming task. So if we, if we take Nadal as an example, right, I think it's like, bounce the ball a few times, right ear, nose, left ear, nose, I don't know, pick your pants or something. like there's, there's a bunch of different acts in there. And if you break those down, a few of them might have a function, right? Bouncing the ball in, in a lot of sports is really important because it gives your brain information about how tired you are, the condition of the ball, the condition of the court, uh, a whole bunch of information is being fed to you that can help you adjust your movement pattern to be successful in the skill you're going to do. Touching your nose is not going to give you any information about what you're about to do. So that's where you um, you get into more of the superstition part. So maybe for people who are listening, if, if you want to build a, a good routine or you have a routine and you're, you're wondering whether it's successful, think about each of the steps of a routine and ask yourself whether it is um, directly geared towards preparing you for what you're about to do. So is there a physical part that gives you information about your physical state? Is there something to make sure that you're always in the same mental state, right? So uh, maybe I think a lot of basketball players have like some kind of like 
uh, uh, breathing technique before a three throw. You can see it. They take a deep breath, and that's to reset their mental state. So, so they're always at the same mental state. They're always at the state, same physical state. That's when a routine is is functional. When it is just acts that don't provide any of that information or don't prepare you, that's then it's a superstition, and it can become really tricky um, because that actually causes anxiety and and all those kinds of things. So as long as there's functional parts in it, I, I really like routines and I would highly suggest everyone using them. Well, that's what I was going to ask you is with all that being said, do you actually recommend having a routine? I mean, I could see in pickleball, like maybe before serving, especially if you have some difficulty serving or are trying to be really precise and hit it in certain spots, it seems like a, a routine would be beneficial. Yeah, for sure. That Those are the kind of situations where it's really really useful. Uh, but again, so if, if we take the serve in, in pickable, think about things and, and maybe you can answer this, Lynn. Um, like what are, what are some things that you need information about? How can you find information about the physical environment, about your mental state? Like focus on those things um, and not whether your, your sweatband or your, um, your headband or your shirt is in a certain position. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Well, one of the things I wanted to finish up with is you are located up in Ottawa in Canada. And actually, I, I know quite a bit of, I do have people in my audience definitely who are from Canada and actually probably travel back and forth between the states if it's not during COVID. But I was going <laughs> to ask you in terms of, do you work with people remotely? Because you don't necessarily have to be in the same room. I don't think as if you're working with with an athlete. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, obviously because of COVID, um, we, we've been forced to move everything on online. But even before that, I I worked with with athletes uh, remotely. It's not only uh, a convenience uh, factor, but there's actually quite a few athletes that I've worked with that preferred it because uh, it allowed them to be in their own comfortable environment. Uh, it allowed them to do it at their you know, pace and, and that kind of thing. And sometimes we could record things and stuff like that. So there's, there's actually people that, that really prefer doing this online. And like you said, um, it, there's not much difference. What is, is really important when you, you work with a mental performance trainer is, is the relationship you build between each other. Like I need to make sure that I understand the athlete and the end, the athlete needs to know that, you know, they need to trust me that I'm going to help them get better and, that part is is definitely possible over a, a Zoom call or a phone call or whatever it is. And if somebody wants to get in touch with you, where's the best place? You can get in contact with me at many different places. So I think the best place would to go to my website, which is jwkmentaltraining.com. Um, and then you there's there's a, a contact form and all that kind of stuff. Uh, other places are Facebook, uh, Instagram, YouTube. Twitter. I'm on, yes, I'm on Twitter. So that would be looking for JWK mental performance training. And then just, just send me a message and uh, I, I, I check all these services every day. So then I can respond and we, we go from there. Okay. Well, great. I'm thank you for all those options. And I really appreciate you being on the show today. Well, thanks for having me, Lynn. Thank you for listening to the Pickleball Fire podcast. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to give it a five-star review on Apple iTunes.